The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, oh, that's a very good question. Uh, hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? You lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Joe Napote, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Uh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom, how are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon... They will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold the Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. As Publishers Weekly writes in its recent glowing review of American Schism, business executive Radwell's epic debut examines the historical influences that have led to what he sees as the collapse of politics in the United States. Seth Radwell makes the case that the current chasm between the American right and left can be traced back to the 18th century's Age of Enlightenment and the basic tenets of liberty, equality, and reason. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody, as we roll into hour two of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. We're going to shift gears and talk about rocks, dinosaurs, human evolution, and more with my guest this hour, who is uh, a senior editor at Nature and author of several books, including a brand new book that looks at the um, history of uh, life on Earth. It's called... A Very Short History of Life on Earth, 4.6 Billion Years in 12 Pithy Chapters, by uh, my guest, Henry G., who joins me by phone from the U.K. Good morning, Henry. Hi, welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. Thanks very much. I was just laughing at all your stings and uh, um, eye dents. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm glad. And, uh, and, and of course, we had... Uh, a bunch of former presidents uh, encouraging people to get vaccines, which I thought was kind of quite fun. right, and, and, and quite right too. Yeah. Um, but let's let's talk about this uh, this very short history of life on Earth. Four point six billion years sounds like a long time to me, Henry. You must have uh, been. Yes. You must have been researching Sorry, no. this forever. 
Uh, well, kind of, um, but uh, it is a very short book. You can hold it in the palm of your hand, and what's more, just between you and me, uh, I uh, throw in another extra billion years for free near the end. So, so, um, <laughs> so, so you get a bit more for your money. Uh, but I've been an editor at Nature for thirty-three and a third years, which somebody told me is a long playing record. And uh, so, a lot of these, a lot of the research I've seen passing across my desk at Nature uh, uh, while I've been there. A lot of uh, research has happened into the history of life on Earth quite recently. Um, so some of this research I, I know personally. Uh, it's, uh, they're all my babies. So it's not as though I was doing it from a standing start. Um, I've been, as my job, it's, it, I have to keep track of all this stuff. So uh, in a way, I kind of um, just wrote it. Um, without having to do much. Although, I have to say, there were some parts where I did have to do quite a lot of research, and as with all books, when you're writing it, you learn a lot along the way. So I was... Uh, I was uh, uh, quite, it was quite a journey, you know? It's uh, not just the, uh, the characters in a story that go on the dreaded J-word that go on the journey, it's the author as well. So, uh, so yeah, it's always a, a fun educational experience writing a book. Henry... Um I mentioned the 12 pithy chapters. Did you break it into um, uh, chronological segments to get some sense of this happened, then this happened, then the next thing? Yeah, uh, more or less. Um, mind you, I, um, I'm not going to say pithy very much because I'm, I'll trip over my teeth. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, uh, it, yeah, it was very much like that it's a it's a linear story and i even start the book once upon a time so it's a little book uh, and there are no illustrations in it except for time charts it's meant to be a kind of bedtime story and they've made it the guys at st martin's press have made it very small you could slip it in an inside pocket i like to say you can hold the whole history of life in the palm of your hand uh so it's uh, i break it down into into segments uh, although they're kind of unequal length, because the further back in time you go, the less people know about things. So, uh, and this is quite marked. So, first nine tenths of Earth history I managed to do in the first fourteen pages, uh, and as I go on, uh, the chapters cover less and less uh, of uh, the history of life on Earth. So, by the time it gets to cha chapter ten. Um, we're into the last two and a half million years, if you see what I mean. Uh, but I have a chapter about the dinosaurs and uh, and chapters about this and that. But yeah, it's mostly in the order in which things happened. How much do we really know about the last 4.6 billion years? Um, we know quite a lot. Uh, but of course, when we're talking about uh, knowledge... Uh, science uh, has to be humble before the evidence. Now, of course, this story may change uh, as more science comes along. And although I tell it like a story, I've got quite a lot of notes in the back which uh, point readers to the original science. And um, science is always moving on, so I'm pleased to say since I wrote the book, there's been more research that has slightly modified uh, some of the things I say in the book, even before it, it's come out. Uh, so, 
the general outlines of the story have been known for quite a long time, but the, the big uh, changes have been in how people have estimated uh, the passage of time. Uh, now, back in the day, uh, it was a quite reasonable supposition that the Earth was only 5,000 or so years old, as it said in the Bible, because there was no other information. But when people discovered geology and realized that things took a lot longer than that and understood uh, about radiometric dating, it became clear that the, uh, that the Earth is very old. It's about 4.6 billion years old. And that life on Earth um, sprang into existence not too long afterwards, about 4.1 uh, billion. So more or less as soon as the Earth formed, life was on it. But all this comes from a web of evidence accumulated over uh, centuries and um, of which is always subject to revision. Um, and and that's, the, that's the fun uh, of, the, of the science. It's a, it's, a, it's a journey. You never know quite where it's going to lead. Occasionally there are upsets um, and suddenly people change the way they think about things. And um, you have to, as a kind of scientific commentator, which is really what I've been all this time, you have to uh, understand that and take that on board. Most people, when they talk about history, are talking about the history of humans. You're talking about the history of the Earth. How much of the Earth's history is human history? Almost none. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, uh, well, in the, in the book, I've got these time charts, and uh, I was... Trying to, I was thinking quite a lot how I was going to depict the hugeness. It's a terrifying hugeness of the passage of time, uh, which um, is, uh, as human beings, we only really can understand time in terms of years and decades in a lifetime. Uh, but uh, we're not accustomed to thinking of time on any great scale. So what I did was I put some time charts, there are six time charts in the book, um, and each one is a tiny fraction of the one before. So time chart six is about our species, and even then it goes, it's quite a lot. It goes from 120,000 years to the present, um, and even you know, earliest, the, the whole of recorded history is only a little thumbnail at the top of that. So then that goes into time chart five, which shows the history of humans and all our relations, which goes back ooh, uh, a few um, a few million years. And then time chart four goes from, uh, you know, the time chart three is just a tiny bit of time chart four, which goes from naught to 65 million years when the dinosaurs became extinct and so on, all the way back to time chart one, which is um, a bit mind-blowing even for me. And I came up with it, uh, and that shows the, uh, the whole of the history of the universe from the birth of the universe 13 billion years ago or so, up to 5 billion years in the future, where the, the sun expands into a red giant and consumes the earth. Now, if you were uh, on that chart, the whole uh, 500 billion years is compressed into about a quarter... 500 million years, you see I'm getting confused now. You're confusing me, Tom. Don't do this to me. 500 million years is compressed into a quarter of an inch. 
so time chart six, the whole of human history would be microscopic. You wouldn't be able to see it at all. So I've had to do this kind of um, Russian doll type treatment. So the whole of, you uh, know, a long answer to your question is the whole of human history is microscopically tiny in, uh, in, in the whole scheme of things. Uh, of course, the stories about our, ourselves, so I've written a book. I talk a lot about humans and how we evolved and how we came to be where they are. But in the context of the whole Earth, human beings have come rather suddenly and will go quite quickly as well. And even... I feel quite terrified, actually, just writing that. E- even though the uh, human existence um, takes up such a tiny fraction of the Earth's history, time itself is as we know it is is a construct of people and and only existed during the time that that humans were living it and and applying it how do you measure time outside of human existence um by the same standard uh uh, yes but it's done uh more objectively uh, by using various physical and chemical means, um, such as radi- the, the radioactive decay. Uh, and, and that's how ancient rocks measured. Um, when minerals are formed, uh, specific minerals tend to accumulate uh, well-known amounts of, uh, of minerals with radioactive elements in them that decay at a set rate. And because we know how much of mineral was there to start with, and because we can measure how much of it is left, we can then estimate when that mineral was new and formed and crystallized out of volcanic rock. Um, and uh, a lot of uh, human prehistory of the hundreds and thousands of uh, years old is measured by the decay of a, of a radioactive potassium into argon. Uh, potassium, this radioactive potassium is thrown out in volcanic lava in, in known quantities and that can be measured uh, but when we're talking about the oldest rocks, that's done by decays of uranium naturally occurring uranium into lead and other um, chemicals like that and from that we can get uh, now here's one of the most amazing things that I discovered it was the earliest possible sign of life on earth was found in a tiny microscopic crystal of a mineral called zircon. Now, zircon is the same mineral you find in jewelry shops, the great big blingy fake diamond rings, you know, cubic zirconia. Um, this is a microscopic, naturally occurring one that was wet, weathered out of a rock. The actual rock itself no longer exists. And it was found to be, by the decay of radioactive elements in the crystal, to be 4.1 billion years old. Henry, Henry, yeah, I, I, I hate to interrupt, but I have to take a short break here. Can you stick around yeah, for a few minutes so we can talk uh, some more? Absolutely. I'm used to time scales and millions of years, so a couple of moments won't hurt at all. <laughs> Excellent and well put. My guest is Henry G. He is the author of uh, A Short History of Life on Earth, 4.6 Billion Years in 12 pithy chapters. We're going to take a short break, let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. Everybody's doing 
it on brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place 
with magical charms indoors 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 take it away hi this is deb cherry genesee county treasurer and you're listening to the tom sumner radio show and welcome back, everybody. We continue my conversation with the author of a uh, new book. It's called A Very Short History of Life on Earth, 4.6 Billion Years in 12 Pithy Chapters by um, a senior editor from Nature, Henry G., who joins me by phone. Henry, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. Uh, thanks, Tom. Uh, no problem. Um, we were talking in the last segment a little bit about uh, time and how the book is divided up to lay out sort of the history of the planet. But in, And I couldn't help wondering, Henry, if in the process of putting this book together, did you discover anything about uh, climate and cycles of climate that might be useful in our discussions about climate change currently? Uh, yes, I, I did. Uh, several things. One is that the climate, just to, to put this out front and center, in case what follows uh, seems to negate what I'm going to say, uh, human-caused climate change is very real and happening very, very quickly. So the more people can do to mitigate it, the better. Uh, however, the Earth is very changeable. And at various times in its long history, has been at various times a ball of molten lava. It's been a world completely covered with water, although without Kevin Costner on it. It's been um, a jungle from one pole to the other, and uh, it's been a ball of ice, like a looking like a pool ball, uh, miles thick. Um, and uh, so the changes in climate have been savage and dramatic over the course of history. And some of, uh, uh, some of these changes have been associated with the activities of living organisms in the past. For example, uh, more than three billion years ago, some bacteria uh, had this handy trick of getting energy by splitting water into hydrogen and oxygen. And this is how green plants do what's called photosynthesis. That's what they do now. They split water into hydrogen and oxygen. Now, these little creatures at the time, uh, because they were tiny brainless creatures, didn't realize that oxygen is a lethal poison and that all their fellow organisms had evolved in the absence of oxygen. So this was something that was caused by living things that completely swept to extinction most of living things. And that was back three point something billion years ago. Um, but the, the big change, uh, the big uh, difference uh, between humans and all the other animals and uh, other creatures as far as we know is that humans are the only creatures that we know of that actually know that they are doing this and therefore can do something about it. So I don't count myself among the people who say, oh, well, there's been huge climate change on the earth in the past. Get over it. I think that we have a, a responsibility as um, 
tidy homeowners to try and tidy up our, the mess that we've, we've made. Um, by the same token, I don't feel I'm part of the hysterical protesting uh, uh, climate change brigade either, um, because people and governments are doing things about it. It's not that people are doing nothing. Uh, people have been trying to make their lives more sustainable for much longer than is generally realised. Uh, I mean, here's one example. Who drives anymore those enormous great automobiles that people used to drive in the 70s? You know, engines at both ends and leaked uh, oil everywhere and need to be fixed all the time and consumed immense amounts of gas. Nobody, nobody drives those anymore. So, uh, you know, when you drive a car now, it doesn't really need fixing, and it's much more fuel economical. And other things like that, people are changing their behaviour to make their lives more sustainable and doing so all the time. So that if you're looking at a measure of uh, human profligacy, and here's one, it's um, per capita energy consumption, and that's the amount of energy that each person consumes. Now, over the whole world, it's still going up. But in so-called developed nations like the US and the UK, it's actually plateaued 50 years ago in the 70s. And it's actually been going down ever since um, because we've changed our behavior. We buy different consumer products. And in the UK, there's something that I learned. Just in the past 20 years, per capita energy consumption has gone down by a fifth, which is astonishing. So it's not true to say that some people do say that people are doing nothing about uh, energy consumption, climate change. People are doing things. So, yes, human beings are causing climate change. And yes, people are beginning to do something about it. And I think that's entirely right that we should do so. Uh, and I learned all this while writing this book. Yeah, I did say that you tend to learn things while writing books, and these are one of the things I've learned. Well, Henry, you just made my whole day brighter. Oh, well, I'm very pleased. One, <laughs> one endeavors, to, one endeavors to, uh, to give satisfaction, sir. Um, Henry, let me ask you this. You said something in the last segment about, uh, about when the Earth began and life formed fairly soon thereafter. Um, in doing this research, did you form any opinions or conclusions about how the Earth actually was formed, and did something about its formation make it a, um, a, a, a place where life was destined to occur? Or um, could it occur about, very naturally? Yeah, well, the, the, thing, the thing about life, apart from its, uh, the, the most amazing, well, the most amazing thing about life apart from the fact that it exists, is that it, it arose so quickly. While the Earth was still um, being bombarded by large rocks from space as the solar system was forming, at the bottom of the deep oceans, life was forming. Just a few hundred million years, and what's a hundred million years between friends? About a few, a few hundred million years after the Earth began. And... This makes it very possible, in my view, that life is actually quite common in the universe. 
Now, when I joined Nature 33 and the Third's Evolution today, there were no planets known outside our own, own solar system. Uh, and I was there in 95 or in 1995 or so when the first what's called extrasolar planet was discovered. And now there are, thanks to NASA and a lot of other people, there are now over 4,000 planets uh, known orbiting other stars in the, in the galaxy. And some of these will be very like the Earth. And I would, I think it's a sure bet that most of them will have life on them. Now, it will be very, very simple life indeed, unlike pond scum at most. Complex life is, a, is another ball of wax, it's another argument. But um, uh, when I started thinking about all this sort of thing, we only had one planet in the universe where we knew there was life on it, and that was the Earth. Now, in, in many ways, that's still the case. Uh, but because we also now know that life originated so quickly on the Earth, I think it's a safe bet that it, uh, it um, originates very quickly wherever planets are formed. I think it's a, a natural thing. Now, this doesn't mean that we're going to get a message uh, from little green people from Alpha Centauri anytime soon. Uh, uh, that's another question entirely because complex life depends on lots and lots of highly um, uh, improbable circumstances stacked one on, one on the other. Yep, I think life is life. Very simple life is pretty common in the universe. I think it's a very natural. I think planets find that life is a very natural infestation. Let, let, let me let me uh, put it that way. Is is there something about um, the Earth and and maybe other planets at at different times in their evolution that something about the makeup of it that itself is a formula for the evolution of life? Yeah, you've got to have all the right ingredients. Uh, life, well, the origin of life is still unknown. Nobody knows how life actually originated. Um, but there are a lot of extremely good ideas. Um, Darwin speculated on what he called a warm little pond. Uh, he got two ideas right. It had to be warm. And it had to be in water. Um, but the problem is having something in open water, if you start to have complicated chemicals, you know, try and make a, it, it will be a very thin steep. And all the chemicals you need to stick to each other will soon dissipate. And you need a lot of active minerals, minerals that will help chemical reactions go along. And what you have in the deep sea, you have uh, mineral-rich jets of water jetting out from the crust into the water and becoming turbulent and settling down in the volcanic rocks round about, which are porous, they're like pumice, pumice stones that you have to scrape your feet, or at least you did in my day, I don't know what people do now. And they're full of tiny holes. And all the, uh, the heat, the chemistry, they would congregate in the tiny holes, and then you would get the chemistry to form uh, the chemistry of life, and life would happen uh, in those little bubbles so whenever you've got all the all these minerals iron and sulfur minerals you've got water you've got oxygen uh, and you've got various other bits and pieces hanging around uh, and you have the, the circumstances then life is bound to happen uh, so um 
it's a pretty winning formula. Also, the chemistry, all, all the chemicals that are needed to make life are pretty well distributed in the universe. I mean, they're comets and asteroids out in the uh, solar system that are largely made of water and contain the carbon compounds that we'd associate with life. Uh, and there's still an idea hanging out, hanging out there in, on the fringes, although it's not as lunatic as some people might think, is that life can travel between planets um, uh, by comets. It's called uh, panspermia. Uh, simple life can, su can survive exposure to outer space for some time. I mean, this, been, this has been shown. Uh, so um, I think I probably uh, digressed rather a long way uh what, what you said um well i can i can i can i can get us back henry um yeah please i'm, I'm, the, I'm the line <laughs> um did you get the sense in in looking at the earth's history and and the way it has evolved since its very beginning that it's the age of a planetary body and and the way it evolves and its proximity to the sun and to other planetary bodies that that set up um, a a place where different life occurs in different ages um, naturally because of naturally occurring uh, events? Oh, oh, yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, life um, probably originates everywhere, but the kind of life will like, probably be... Sorry, yeah, carry on. Why, why would there ever be feathered dinosaurs? Oh, well, that's a, another, another thing. Well, <laughs> this is because... Um, you, got, you got me onto a pet subject here. Uh, when, when we were uh, young lads, Tom, dinosaurs were seen as hulking great fruits which were rather dim and destined walking on a long road to extinction. Uh, but discoveries in over the past few decades have shown that dinosaurs were very uh, intelligent, colourful, uh, active creatures, and they were always built to fly. Um, they had the hollow bones that uh, birds have. They have a lightweight structure. Uh, what's more, birds now are full of air because their lungs extend in little air cavities right throughout the body. Um, and this allows this allowed big dinosaurs to become really big because if something becomes really big, it can tend to overheat and boil itself from the inside out. But because they were air-cooled, that didn't happen, so they could grow really big. But also, they could get really small and they sprouted petals uh, and so you've got feathers, you've got the uh, breathing system, you've got the air cooling, you've got the light bone structure. Uh, dinosaurs were cleared for takeoff um, a long time ago, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of years before they actually did take off. Now, of course, you have to be a certain size and weight to take off. Uh, I mean, a lot of these feathered dinosaurs were about as aerodynamic as a, uh, as a pickup truck. Uh, so... Um, <laughs> Uh, so, so that that didn't happen. So it was a, the smaller one. So, uh, in a way, these enormous great dinosaurs that we all grew up with, like Brontosaurus, 
uh, shouldn't be thought of as great big lumbering giant lizards, but um, light-footed, gigantic, featherless, flightless birds. Uh, that's really the way to think about them. Uh, and uh, I was in the room where it happened, Tom, when feathered dinosaurs were first uh, discovered, as it were. I was at a meeting of the uh, Society of Vertebrate Paleontology in, in New York in 1905 or 96, and we were all having a cocktail party in the American Museum of Natural History in the Hall of the Pacific Northwest. So there we were, uh, drinking beer and eating peanuts underneath all these totem poles. When this Chinese scientist called uh, called Peiji Chen uh, came in with this greasy six by four print uh, of a feathered dinosaur that had been found in China. Now Chen is not a, a vertebrate paleontologist. He doesn't know anything about dinosaurs. He has, he's interested in other things that live in the rocks he was studying in northern China, and they kept coming across these things, and he didn't know what to make of it. So he came to the states to show the paleontologists. And um, everyone was completely blown away. And I was standing next to uh, a senior paleontologist, John H. Austin, who'd been saying for years and years that dinosaurs and birds were very closely related. And he said, just look at the skeletons. But um, he was fighting a kind of losing battle because the general consensus was that birds originated from some other group way, way back in the past and nothing to do with dinosaurs. And John, by that time, was uh, very old and uh, walking with a cane, and he saw this picture, and he, I sat next to him, and he was sitting down on a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a bench, and he was just completely aghast. And uh, Mark Norell, one of the AMNH's senior dinosaur hunters, said, I'm on the next plane to Beijing. And I was talking with Mark, and I, he, he asked me where my next appointment was. I said I was going to... I was going to um, went to visit my agent in Brooklyn, and he said, ha, ah, I've been to Beijing more often than I've been to Brooklyn. Um, but uh, I gave uh, Professor Chen my, uh, uh, my details, and in due course, he sent that paper on the first feathered dinosaur to nature, and that was followed by a whole flock of feathered dinosaurs. And that, within about five to ten years, the whole idea of dinosaurs changed, uh, about that they were active and they were feathered and they were colourful. And because of more advances in uh, microscopy uh, and, um, and, and image analysis, we now know that a lot of these feathers had patterns in them. They were coloured. So a lot of these dinosaurs behaved just like birds. And uh, they, were really, they were really birds. That's what you really have to think of them as. Uh, the distinction between dinosaurs and birds has become uh, so thin now as to be virtually meaningless. Does this um, does your book Henry uh, lay out a, an outline or a, a starting point for people who want to take a closer look at uh, the history of the Earth in different eras of its evolution? Yes, uh, it does. At least I hope so. Uh, although it's a very short book, it's you know, the length of a short novel. Um, there's quite a lot of uh, further reading of accessible books that anyone here should be able to read that I suggest people read. Uh, for example, if you wanted to know about dinosaurs, you should look no further than my friend Steve Brusatti's New York Times bestseller, The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs. Um, and there's a lot of other books there, but also for people who really want to 
get their hands dirty, as it were, I point people to the scientific research that underpins the stuff that I talk about and also uh, so that most of the things I say are subject to debate. When you get two scientists in the room, you'll get three opinions. So people can... <laughs> Yeah, pe- people can then really get into the uh, get get into the work and find out more about whether it's dinosaurs, whether it's early mammals, whether it's the movement of early amphibians onto land, whether it's the amazing story of sponges, uh, or whether it's the evolution of human beings. Uh, I did manage to condense. I, I still am amazed that I managed to condense such a lot into a book that was so small. But the print's not very small. I mean, you know, I can read it. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so, so just by rigorous editing and just by concentrating on, on the exciting bits. So what's uh, next so, for you, Henry? Do you know? I don't know. I mean, uh, I've been writing books. Well, ever since I did my graduate thesis, I've been writing books. And um, I always say to my wife that, oh, after that, I'm never going to write another expletive deleted book. <laughs> and my wife, um, my wife looks at me knowingly and knows that after a few months, I'll get that itch and want to write something. But there is something that uh, has been occurring to me, and it's something I only touched on very slightly, is I'd like to know more about the future of our species and how and why and if and when we will become extinct. Uh, because all animals do become extinct. Uh, my worry is that human beings will become extinct quite soon. Uh, and uh, so I don't want to spoil your day by talking too much about that. Um, but that's something I've got to really get into and think about and do a lot of research before I get my get my thoughts together on that uh, and read a lot of books and read a lot of science and talk to people. But that's probably the probably the the next thing i'll i'll have a go at well henry we've got to end it here but i always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work past present and future do you have a website yes um excellent those who don't know the location of my secret base underneath an extinct volcano where i sit surrounded by computer monitors in a chair with my white cat saying no, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. And usually, <laughs> uh, I, I do have a website I set up for this book, and it's called Deep Breath A Very Short History of Life on Earth.com. And if you type that, you'll get to a website that shows uh, all about me, where I can be found, where you can get the book, uh, which voluntary organizations exist to help you rehabilitate afterwards, and all sorts of interesting. Uh, facts how to find me on Twitter, Facebook, uh, uh, come and buttonhole me in the street, whatever. Well, Henry, it's been a real pleasure with you. I can't, uh, talking with you. I can't believe how fast the time has gone, but uh, who would know That's better than about you? That. <laughs> well, about, you know, as as, uh, as someone once said, time is, time is an illusion, lunchtime doubly so. <laughs> Fair point. Henry, keep up the good work, and thank you so much. And thanks for having me on your show, Tom. All the best. Take care. Again, that was Henry G. He is a uh, senior writer at uh, Nature and the author of several books, including his brand new book, 
a very short history of life on Earth, 4.6 billion years in 12 pithy chapters. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination? A COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Say, objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just, um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. 
Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Oh, great lovers of the world, lend me thy ears. Where has love wrought? (laughs) Love has wrought beauty. Love is the world. The world is love, and the great lovers of the world have made the earth a very precious, beautiful, and lovely place. Where is the love? Tell me. It's it's there. It's there. (laughs) Oh, where is the love? It's there. Where is the love? Do you know where the love is? It's there, Tom. It's all around you. Love is everywhere. Love is ever-changing, ever-growing, ever-moving. Love is passionate. It is flowing. It is sweet. It is wonderful. Love is compassion. Love is... Love is God. This is a song of two lovers. Right. Not world-famous lovers. lovers. Not a Romeo and Juliet. Not that type of a love. But two people whose love was an unrequited love. Unrequited love. Very beautiful love. A love that very few people ever hear of. It's a story of Herman and Sally. You've heard of them, huh? Herman was a lobster. And Sally was a crab. Never work out that way, will it? (laughs) Herman met Sally on the beach one night The sea was calm and the starfish were bright He looked at her and she looked at him And it was true love at first sight Now Herman told his folks about the girl he found And they said, Herman, there must be other girls around (laughs) Cause crabs walk sideways and lobsters walk straight And we won't let you take her for your mate Everybody sing now! Crabs walk sideways and lobsters walk straight And we won't let you take her for your mate Where is love? (laughs) Try singing like that. (laughs) Poor Herman and poor Sally Whence did their love whence wrong? Oh, the bittersweet pain of love's nectar. Yes, Herman, though he loved Sally, could not marry her, could not have her for his own. 
Herman was a lobster, Sally was a crab. Herman lived in a restricted neighborhood. <laughs> so he had to make a decision. And Herman made a decision which was sad and very hard for him to do. But then, being a lobster, Herman had no backbone. <laughs> Herman told Sally and it broke her heart She had loved that lobster right from the start He took her in his claws and said I'll always be yours But still, we really have to part Sally said let's talk to your mom and your dad I'll show them that crabs really aren't that bad <laughs> They turned her away, what would the neighbors say? And they laughed at the funny walk she had Two, three, Crabs walk sideways and lobsters walk straight And we won't let you take her for your mate Sing out, friends, now! Crabs walk sideways and lobsters walk straight And we won't let you take her for your mate Once again, gang! Oh, crabs walk sideways, lobsters walk straight, and we won't let you take her for your mate. One more time now! Oh, crabs walk sideways, lobsters walk straight, and we won't let you take her for your mate. One day on a sandbar, what did Herman see? But his little old Sally walking straight as can be. He said, Sally, I can take you in my family. And she said, Herman. Don't you street at me. Crabs <laughs> <laughs> walk sideways and lobsters walk straight and we won't let you take it for your man. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Yeah. 
Alexander Zajic, Don't Touch That Dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.